0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Uh, You know, the Cotton Club, it was run by mobsters. And uh, it wasn't necessarily a three-year engagement. You you didn't sign a contract. You had to get their permission to leave. Oh. You know, (laughs) (laughs) an old man was able to go out and play a couple of years of one night. and he was on the condition that he would come back and do further years in the future with them. That's Mercer Ellington, son of the great orchestra
0: leader Duke Ellington, on what it was like to be a musician in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s. Mercer Ellington, our guest today on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. A chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. I grew up in an era when it was still possible here and there to see the big bands performing. As a kid, I saw the Glenn Miller Orchestra. As an adult, I saw Buddy Rich, Fred Waring, and Maynard Ferguson. Perhaps the most elegant of all of the big bands was on the jazz side. The Duke Ellington Orchestra. The Duke himself died in 1974, but six years later, the orchestra was still touring under the leadership of his only child, musician Mercer Ellington. On August 23, 1980, it performed at Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa, where I met the great man backstage, securing an interview with Mercer and jazz great Cootie Williams, a trumpet contemporary of Louis Armstrong. Mercer was with his dad his entire professional career. When Mercer was born, Duke Ellington was not yet a full-time musician. He made most of his living as a talented sign painter. But by the mid-1920s, Duke Ellington was a global success. So successful, he could send Mercer to study music at Columbia University and Juilliard. Beginning in the late 30s, Mercer led his own bands, working with Billy Strayhorn, Clark Terry, Cat Anderson, Cootie Williams, and Carmen McRae. But his eventual home was his father's organization, the Duke Ellington Orchestra, where he played numerous roles, including composer, arranger, trumpeter, even band manager. I was 29 years old and Mercer was 60 when we sat down to talk. I found him to be a delightful conversationalist, fun, friendly, and, like his dad, a man of impeccable manners. In a word, elegant. We spoke in a rehearsal room in the Loris College Fieldhouse shortly after the show. The result was this feature on the sophisticated nature of the Duke Ellington Orchestra.
2: A musical historian once wrote, if music critics think they have to make an excuse for the big band era, the name of Duke Ellington should make any further justification unnecessary. Ellington was elegant a smooth band leader, an accomplished pianist, and most importantly, a jazz composer with no peer, a composer who wrote with and for his orchestra. Over the years, that excitement and that freedom for musicians kept his big band together when others were falling apart. Cootie Williams is a good illustration of that. He's getting up in years now, but he's still a trumpet player. He has been professionally since 1928. In fact, he's such a great trumpet player, he's in the Jazz Hall of Fame. Over the years, he played with such great big band names as Fletcher Henderson, Chick Benny Goodman and Duke Ellington he even fronted his own band for 20 years but when you ask him what band he enjoyed playing with most he doesn't hesitate with the answer Mm, Duke Ellington band why was
1: that? I just liked his music much better because he played a more variety of music than any other band and all the other bands played one type of music and Ellington played uh, symphony music church music Anything that you wanted to go into, he had to play, you know. He had your freedom to play, yeah. <coughs> That's the reason why he kept his band together, because he played... S- he wasn't limited to playing when you worked with uh, Duke Ellington. The other bands, you were just limited to playing that Satan type of music all the time.
2: The Ellington excitement that attracted Cootie Williams in the first place recently brought him out of retirement. This time it was not Duke Ellington, but Mercer Ellington, the Duke's son. Mercer joined the band as a trumpeter and arranger and took over after his father's death. And it's obvious, listening to the music, watching the talent, and feeling the excitement, that the Duke Ellington Orchestra is still today a living, breathing musical organization, keeping on the veterans and building with the newcomers.
1: Well, basically that's really what we do. Uh, We play the standards, and we particularly I have to be certain that the people who have come to listen to the band in the name of Ellington will get what they expected. But uh, we can't just limit ourselves to that, otherwise uh, there's no development, which is one of the things that Pop taught me. He said, you always got to keep writing, you keep adding, keep trying. And uh, generally our proving grounds for a concert is usually the dance hall. So if we find something that takes the audience's liking. Uh, we decide to move it up and bring it as a concert and try it so that from time to time uh, we make little differences and in hopes that if, uh, say, we circle and come back to the same spot a year later, that the program will still be interesting and, and, well, not necessarily quite different, but different enough not to uh, get the feeling that you're jading yourself.
2: Apparently it's quite a stimulating
1: environment for a musician. Well, uh, I I think one of the other things too is the challenge because uh, the music he writes is always just a little edge that's away and different from just, just when you expect it to turn right, it goes left, and uh, there's always some form of stimulation there. But we we can can reach back and get things uh, that are pretty much up to date as far as concept is concerned. So that uh, we have two jobs with the orchestra. One is to uh, keep the interest of the audience up show to show, day to day, week to week, and year to year. The other is you've got to keep the interest of the men up because they don't want to sit there and you know just go through the same ritual night after night. So that uh, we continually shift things and uh, one of our best ways in doing this is to go back and get numbers that uh, weren't performed uh, too much in the recent past. Uh, we've been ordering uh, uh, things uh, to be brought out of our library like the thing we opened up with East St. Louis Tudlow which uh, hadn't been played for years. That's a pretty old. That was one of the first songs, wasn't it? Right, and uh, uh, Ring Them Bells came out of the first picture he appeared in with Amos and Andy. So we're reaching to get these things, and they have interest uh, not only to uh, the uh, fan that's followed the band for years, but with the youngest, that they're kind of uh, beginning to study and want to know what happened back then in that era.
2: In addition to songs like East St. Louis Toodaloo, which you're hearing right now in the original 1927 recording from Mercer's father, Duke, the band also plays contemporary pieces written by members of its band. And being a member of the Duke Ellington band can be, at times, a rather confusing thing. I, I read that Al Sears, one of the tenor men in the past, had said that when he joined the band, he was astounded to find he was playing music completely different than what the rest of the band was playing. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's because um, he took uh, uh, Ben Webster's chair, and the, the band was composed mainly of four saxophones. And uh, the music that Ben had to play uh, was, uh, had to be developed apart from what existed in four parts before. Because uh, he would play by ear, and all of a sudden he'd land on Johnny Hodges' note, or he'd land on Harry's note, and all that, and said, "Get off my note!" You know. <laughs> <So> finally, <laughs> he had to keep picking uh, a melody or something that went with it that was was away from what it was written in the arrangement. The
2: Ellington band Mercer brought to Lawrence College was a sixteen-piece outfit, and seven of those members played with Duke Ellington when he was alive. We ask him about them. When
1: I think of the original band, I think of the band I heard in 1927. And that was Duke Ellington, uh, Wellman Bro, Sonny Greer on drums. Cootie wasn't even there. There was a guy by the name of Bubba Miley, Tricky Sam, uh, Odo Hardwick, Barney Bigard, and Harry Connick. At that point, Johnny Hodges hadn't joined. Uh, I think the band that most people think of when they say original band is the band of the 40s when uh, Johnny Hodges was there, Cootie was there. Uh, also uh, Ben Webster and Bonnie and they well you just about had the richest display of talent at that point but uh, when you say original band uh, I think the best concept, the best way to explain it is that we have a, an orchestra that has seven men who in a sense were contemporary to Ellington so uh, for instance Anita has been with us we're six years old and she was with my father for two years uh, prior to his passing the same with Rocky White, also Barry Lee Hall, Malcolm Taylor, Chuck Connors, who's been in the band 18 years, and uh, uh, Harold Minerve. So that's sort of like our group of seniors that uh, has, you know, sort of like the nucleus that forms the rest of the orchestra.
2: Well, now obviously you have to recruit new people too. Uh, what is an audition for a member of the Duke Ellington Band like?
1: Well, the, the, the man uh, that takes the spot is prepared for before the spot empties. Oh, I see. Uh, people are interested in the band, we play from place to place, so one day you look up and you see five trumpets or you see six saxophones because someone expressed an interest in pay- playing with the band. So we tell them, okay, will you work with us tonight and let's see what you do. If he's interesting or uh, a very good musician, we make a note of it. When the chair empties, we call him back. Is that right? right? <laughs> So you keep it sort of like a resume file in a way. Yeah, because we try them all over, and it's no wonder that the band itself now is composed of guys from just about across the United States. And now we have uh, five from Texas <laughs> and uh, two from Indianapolis, uh, one from Cincinnati, one from Dayton, uh, two from uh, Detroit and Michigan, uh, three people from New York, and so on. <laughs> and uh, two out of Jersey. So that uh, we... Uh, uh, the, the band, as it stands, is always as it was, uh, of the, what might be termed the band of say uh, the '60s, there wasn't but one man in the band who lived in New York. Mm-hmm. And it was Russell Proko. <laughs> Everyone else lived away from it. No, you
2: took over the band. I understand you took the band out. I think was it the day after your father's funeral? That must have yeah. been kind of.
1: Was that kind of rough, or was there an agreement that you would well, take the band on? You know, when you've been in show business like I have uh, uh, from childhood. And you go through the rigors of it, I mean, for instance, Ella Fitzgerald lost her sister while she was doing a European tour. So uh, she passed. Uh, Ella took one day off, flew to her funeral in Los Angeles, and flew back and made a date the next time. It's not that uh, you're just avid believers in the fact that the show must go on, but uh, it's something like that. You get used to all of the trials and tribulations as you go along, uh, the deaths and whatever occur. We'll have more with
0: Mercer Ellington on the Duke Ellington Orchestra when The Off-Ramp continues. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith and a conversation I had with the son of the late great Duke Ellington, Mercer Ellington, in 1980 when Mercer was touring with the orchestra. A Duke Ellington Orchestra, after the Duke's death in 1974, was not planned. Mercer said its continued existence was due to one invitation.:
1: In a sense it was fate to play the hand and I continuing with the schedule, because uh, Ed Riley, who represented IBM, had a handshake with Ellington in the hospital and said, uh, "Duke, I want the band to play the, the uh, convention, uh, whether it's with you or without you," meaning that he thought that maybe the band would have to go and play it while Pop was still in the hospital." But uh, as it turned out, uh, we wound up uh, without him completely. And uh, the next six months, uh, the dates that we had stayed in as a memoriam to him. People just uh, thought when the band came through, they paid tribute to Ellington. While we were doing that, we got other dates, (laughs) and here we are six years later.
0: The Duke Ellington Orchestra of the 1980s gave its audiences the standards... hot instrumental solos
2: and some sizzling contemporary vocal work by singer Anita Moore But the legacy of the man who founded the band, the man who started the drive toward diversity, lives on. There are stories that when the big bands were all breaking up uh, because of the money situation, uh, transportation costs, that the Duke was supporting the band by his own royalties from his compositions.
1: And that's what's kept us going. In fact, that's actually what's helped us out. Uh, i say in the first two to three years that we've existed, the royalties from the ASCAP and the, from the songs and things of that sort. You're writing a book on your father. Yeah. it's uh, in a sense uh, of criticism Uh, it's uh, vengeance involved in the book because he left me (laughs) (laughs) and I'm mad about that and uh, in addition uh, it's more personalized we call it Duke Ellington in person and we give away some of the uh, sort of inner uh, semantics that Duke Ellington employed uh, with the guys he worked with some with the ladies that he lived with and uh... sort of his basic philosophy and uh, some of the uh... in a sense beguiling that he was able to do and also uh... D- Ellington was uh, a man who uh... was very dictatorial in a very subtle way. I mean he always had you doing what he wanted you to do. You never knew how you would land up in that spot, but there it was. Mercer joined his dad's band in the 1950s, first in the brass
2: section and then as an arranger.
1: I joined the band first and I played trombone in the 50s and uh then later uh he hired me as a road manager and uh, i i said on one condition i played in the trumpet section which is where i've been trying to get for years <laughs> 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 is that nepotism <laughs> do we call <apply? laughs> <laughs> in reverse <laughs> right <laughs> so and i got the job and we stayed there right through the 70s and as the years went on or days, I should say, Cootie was sitting back in the section. He said, "Man, get out front and do, you know, start talking. Somebody's got to talk to these people." <laughs> and I was racing back and forth trying to play parts because I had very little solo roles. And finally, I just left the horn back then. But uh, I still hang on to it and blow a couple of notes here and there, dances. Doing the book, have you found anything about your father that you weren't aware of before? No, I knew mostly. You know, I idolized him so much that as I was growing up. I would hang with all the people he knew and all his buddies that he had gone with, uh, you know, hung around with uh, through the years. And I'd sit there and, and spend hours and days talking to these people just learning events and incidents and things that happened in the past. And uh, by the time, uh, I used to embarrass him tremendously because we'd be out, and this is like after I'd gotten to about 45 or 50. And we'd be talking about something, and uh, uh, someone would mention uh, the Saratoga Club, or one of the old dates and all, and i go through the complete description of detail and everything that happened without <laughs> even waiting for him to come up with the answer. And he says, tell them also that you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> it made him look older. <laughs>
2: During our conversation, Mercer Ellington mentioned several famous New York clubs that his father played in, so we asked him about the most famous Harlem night spot, the Cotton Club. Duke's first big break was a three-year run playing there. And Mercer told us it was sometimes easier for a Cotton Club musician to be hired than fired. Uh,
1: you know, the Cotton Club was on Lenox Avenue, and uh, it wasn't necessarily a three-year engagement. Uh, in those days, it was luck in the sense that he got the job to work in the Cotton Club. And uh, it was run by mobsters. Um, people like Jack Legs Diamond used to come through there all the time, Oney Madden. And, uh, you know, uh, I never uh... developed any fear of gangdom or anything I saw because I learned that they were people first without finding out about it and they become, they used to play bridge and all that stuff up there so that uh... as the years went by I mean if you, you didn't sign a contract you had to get their permission to leave Oh, you know <laughs> <laughs> so, an old man was able to go out and play a couple of years of one-nighters and he was on the condition that he would come back and do further years in the future with him so uh... he went back to the Atlantic Avenue the club closed and then it moved downtown to 40, uh, about 46th Street. It's If you go by there now, and I don't even think that name is up there anymore, but it's what they used to call the Latin Quarter. That was a downtown cotton club. And uh, as the days went on, uh, the bands found other places to go and they had less less uh, uh, attractions to draw on to support the club. It finally closed. But Louis was playing there, Louis Armstrong, and uh, Cab, Ellington. Uh, Jimmy Luntz, with a band that's very, were uh, uh, hardly ever spoken of today. Jimmy Lunsford, is that what you Yeah, uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, was uh, in and out there and uh, all in all, um, the great bands, I mean they just dwindled because there was no place for them to go. Uh, a place that was much more highly indicative of the, what happened to show business uh, from those days is the, the disappearance of the Savoy. Because, uh, I mean, for instance, they've got the United States and its international brochure shows how there's a period of jazz involved, and they have a marquee on the Savoy Ballroom on a New Year's Eve, and the orchestras appear account, basically Duke Ellington, Fletcher Henderson, and Benny Goodman, for $2. $2? $2 on a New Year's Eve. <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> Good Lord. So it was that kind of an operation that really kept the life in, in New Uh in the show business and all over the major cities had places like that milwaukee had the eagles and uh chicago uh grand terrace ballroom and so forth but they have disappeared so where do you play today we just keep moving <laughs> uh we've uh, for the most part uh worked in europe i'd say about one third of the year at least we'll have this year uh we've been to mexico japan so far uh, may the sixth we leave for south america uh, in the latter part of June, we go to Australia, New Zealand, come back, and then go to Europe for july and uh, with that, uh, it gives us enough time in between to find the other places within the states that keep us moving around. How do you know where you are <laughs> i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well you know the the problem is figuring out what 's going on today because you 're still living in the future so much you uh, for instance, uh last week, I was involved with getting the music for the Sacred Concert over to the choir in Munich, uh, getting the visas straight for Australia, and also uh, getting uh, instrumentation and names ready for South America. So that in the, in the, while you're thinking all this, and Chuck comes up and says, uh, uh, what hotel are we going to be in tomorrow? I don't know. That's <laughs> too, <laughs> <laughs> too close to the present. You <laughs> have to a place where you just totally oblivious. So, uh, Either what day this for instance, uh Sunday will will run by you, sometimes you don't, you're not aware of it. And uh, well, we uh, we were, we were fortunate it this year in a way. It was we had it with mixed emotions because we're used to spending uh, Christmas holidays and Easter with our families. You know, everybody just goes home. And this this year we worked through both holidays. So now, do the families try to join you sometimes. Yeah. Uh, in, in oh yeah, the like for instance, we two of the wives on board now and uh, next thing you know if we go someplace like disneyland or knoxbury farm well, kids you see like, about six or seven kids come off that bus and dogs and
2: everything else well you hear you talk you think that if, if in your case at least the big band business is
1: still booming oh yeah mm-hmm. booming in both music and babies they <laughs> <laughs> we say well when do you take a vacation we take a vacation at work because one of the dates or one of the places we'll go to uh, we'll be nice and cons for about uh, four days, and, you know, we would never be able to afford the vacation in that area if they didn't provide the rooms.
2: One way the band survives financially these days is that some of its members double as roadies, putting up and tearing down the equipment after the performance for extra pay. And you might say that Mercer is, well... Bus
1: captain. Well, I just go out there and put in an appearance and make sure that those who are not ready and getting together and on the bus will be there shortly. Do you, do you, do
2: you handle that yourself? Do you have a road manager? How does that work? I don't know,
1: everybody, uh, what, you, what you see is what you get. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I'm the, uh, every job I ever had with the band, uh, I still retain. My first job was assistant band boy, and uh, then later on, the, the uh, manager. And uh, band leader. So now uh, I'm still the road manager, and uh, on stage, Rocky is the stage manager. Our drummer, he takes care of the equipment, and we, you know, we move and we keep it reduced. Everybody gets more pay, and uh, we're able to move more con- uh, concisely, particularly when we fly. But who's uh, the assistant band boy these days? I am. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you still got that yeah, job. I still got the job. <laughs>
2: Mercer Ellington and the Duke Ellington Orchestra. This is Bob Smith.
0: Shortly after this interview, Mercer Ellington became the conductor of the Broadway musical Sophisticated Ladies, a review of his dad's music played nightly by Mercer and the Duke Ellington Orchestra. The show was a smash success and ran until 1983. After the Broadway run, Mercer kept the Ellington Orchestra on the road into the late 1980s. When Mercer disbanded the unit, he settled in Denmark with his family and he handed over to Danish radio a colossal archive of unissued Duke Ellington recordings which his father had made over the years. These were broadcast in their entirety and the many hours of previously unknown music caused a sensation among Duke Ellington enthusiasts throughout the world. At the time of Mercer's death in 1996, The British newspaper, The Independent, remarked, Had his father not been such a great and prolific composer, Mercer Ellington would have been held in higher regard for his own writing. Among his compositions were Pigeons and Peppers in 1937, Moon Mist, Jumpin' Pumpkins, and a classic the Ellington band frequently played, Things Aren't What They Used to Be. Today, the Duke Ellington experience continues to delight audiences under the direction of one of Duke's grandsons, Mercer's son, Paul Ellington. Well, that's our show for now. We thank you for listening to this interview with Mercer Ellington, the son of Duke Ellington, recorded back in 1980. It's time to leave the off-ramp and get back on the expressway of life, but we hope you join us next time for The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.